Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the explosive story at CNN and the New York Times revealing a missing 10-inch thick 2,700-page binder of top-secret intelligence on Russian interference and collusion in the 2016 election and beyond that went missing as Trump left the White House in January of 2021. Joining us is Gregory Treverton, a senior advisor with the Transnational Threats Project at the Center for Strategic International Studies and a professor of the practice of international relations at the University of Southern California. He served in government for the first Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, handling Europe and the National Security Council, and was chairman of the National Intelligence Council from 2014 to 2017. His books include Dividing Divided States, Beyond the Great Divide, Relevance and Uncertainty in National Intelligence, and Science for Policy. Then we'll examine further how Trump and his minions tried to doctor the intelligence in the missing binders to support Trump's witch hunt and Russia hoax lies that unfortunately have muddied the waters and left much of the press wary of investigating the mounting evidence as Putin gears up to help elect Trump again. Joining us is Scott Horton, a professor at Columbia Law School and a contributing editor at Harper's in Legal Affairs and National Security. He serves on the American branch of the International Law Association and has represented a variety of journalists and whistleblowers. Then finally, we'll speak with Sebastian Faber, a professor of Hispanic Studies at Oberlin College. He's the author of a number of books, including Anglo-American Hispanists and the Spanish Civil War, Hispanophilia, Commitment and Discipline, Memory Battles of the Spanish Civil War, History, Fiction, Photography, and Exhuming Franco, Spain's Second Transition. He serves as the chair of the Board of Governors of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade Archives, whose quarterly magazine is The Volunteer. We'll discuss the American rights embrace of the fascist dictator Franco, along with the Hungarian kleptocrat and despot Viktor Orban. And joining us now is Gregory Treverton, a senior advisor with the Transnational Threats Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and a professor of the practice of international relations at the University of Southern California. He has served in government for the first Senate Select Committee on Intelligence Handling Europe for the National Security Council and was chairman of the National Intelligence Council from 2014 to 2017. His books include Dividing Divided States, Beyond the Great Divide, Relevance and Uncertainty in National Intelligence, and Science for Policy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Gregory Treverton. Pleasure to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, there are explosives articles of both CNN titled The Mystery of the Missing Binder, How a Collection of Raw Russian Intelligence Disappeared Under Trump, and in the New York Times, material from Russian investigation went missing as Trump left office. So this binder that's missing has, is about 10 inches thick and 2,700 pages, according to press reports. I find it hard to understand, Greg, how if this is the only copy that it disappeared with Trump when he left the White House in January of 2021, some reports suggest that uh, Mark Meadows took it out of the White House. But would that be the only copy? Would the CIA still have a, have a copy? Or would somebody inside the intelligence community 
still have a copy, or they have literally left the only copy available in uh, into Trump's hands. I think that's one of the many things we don't know. The story is still pretty murky at this stage. We know that some of those documents were redacted and even released, but we don't know what the rest of the documents look like. We don't know how, we have some idea how many pages, we don't know how many documents. We don't know what the documents are. So the, the story is uh, still pretty murky. Apparently the redaction was done several different times, including by one of Mr. Trump's directors of national intelligence, John Radcliffe, to try and redact them in a way that would cast doubt on the Soviet, med the Russian meddling in our 2016 elections. So it's still a pretty murky story, I think. We don't know. We presume, I think, that uh, the agencies, the CIA and others, would have kept copies of the documents that they put in the binder. Um, but whether there's even more copies of the binder itself, I think that's one of the questions we don't know. Well, you would think it, it would, one would hope it would get the attention of Judge Cannon down there in Florida, who is handling the missing documents case from Mar-a-Lago, this compounds the problem for Trump, doesn't it? Or at least it should, although it does seem that this judge has been pretty friendly to Trump in the past and was appointed by him, uh, has been delaying the trial. What's your sense of whether or not this could impact the case in Florida? It certainly should have an impact. I mean, it really, you know, we've gone from first thinking that, uh, that Trump keeping the documents at Mar-a-Lago was mostly ego and carelessness, but now we know there's a good deal of maliciousness in this, trying to use documents and redact them selectively to try and discredit the investigation into the Russian meddling. Uh, so this obviously is, a, is adds a whole dimension to the documents issue and really ought to light a fire under Judge Cannon. We'll, we'll see if it does. But it is missing, right? That's, that much we know, right? It is missing. And and, uh, you know, it's hard to do a damage assessment if you don't know what the documents are. We know some of them, the ones that were redacted and some of them released, but we don't know the vast majority of what they are. And presumably the, the intelligence agencies who worried about this for a couple of years, that even informed the Senate Intelligence Committee a couple of years ago about their concerns. So they, uh, they are substantially in doubt about exactly what documents they have lost. Well, we don't know, do we, whether they've been destroyed or, whether, in fact, whether they've ended up in the hands of the Russians, right? It could be almost anywhere, yes, yes, and they, including in the hands of the Russians. And we know that, we know that the, um, you know, the, the original redactions did mostly turn, turn this into what was regarded as turn the, the redacted parts into an unclassified document. But the unredacted pieces, uh, concern is by the intelligence community that the unredacted pieces, whatever they are, uh, could cast substantial harm on intelligence sources and methods, which is obviously the holy grail of the intelligence community. Well, that's the problem all along, isn't it, with counterintelligence? There's a lot more to the Trump-Putin relationship than's ever been exposed to the public, hasn't it? Because most of that information is in the CI world, right? Yes, yes. No, I think I think there is much more to the uh, Trump-Putin relationship that we don't know about. It certainly does seem like the uh, Russians and Putin in particular feel like they have something on on Trump, and Trump seems to behave as though that's right. 
So there's a, a lot more there, and I think probably that's lots of that. Uh, maybe even counterintelligence doesn't know. Uh, still, uh, still concerned about, of course, but doesn't really have the facts. We know that the famous Steele dossier uh, wasn't entirely wrong. It wasn't entirely verified, and some pieces of it may be wrong, but it certainly wasn't entirely wrong, and it did begin to cast some uh, some information on what the nature of of the of Trump's relationship to, to Russia was. Well, but I recall that President Obama tried to get the four leaders of the House and Senate, Ryan and O'Connell and Pelosi, and I, I don't know whether it was Harry Reid or Schumer at the time, it might have been Harry Reid, but in any case, he tried to get them to make a join him in a bipartisan statement revealing Russia's inter- interference in the 2016 election as it was happening. And my understanding is that that was not based on the Steele dossier. That was based upon information. The CIA had somebody inside the Kremlin, uh, Oleg Smolenkov, who was later exfiltrated out and ended up being exposed by somebody in the Trump White House. And they gave the safe house in Virginia where he was they gave the information to CNN, and the reporter showed up, and Smolenkov was sent off into witness protection, and never, as far as I know, never was able to testify to Mueller or anybody else. So, is that your understanding? You, you were the national intelligence officer at that time. Yes. No, I was. Uh, the last thing I did at the end of the Obama administration was oversee the study of the intelligence study into what the Russians had done in 2016, and the. <clears throat> The evidence was, is really overwhelming. It's irrefutable, uh, the, their meddling. And what the, some of the special sources, which I probably shouldn't say much about, what they showed is that Putin knew it. Uh, whether or not he ordered it, he certainly knew of it. He was in on it. Uh, and while the Russians probably didn't expect to elect Donald Trump, they certainly were eager to discredit candidate and, and perhaps President Clinton since everybody, including them, probably assumed that she was going to win in 2016. So in that sense, I think they were um, lucky that their efforts contributed to actually electing Trump, not just discrediting Clinton. So the evidence that you just mentioned, uh, Greg, wasn't that also sort of gathered by the director of central intelligence at the time, John Brennan, at the end of his tenure and preserved? That's what... uh, uh, Brennan said yesterday on on MSNBC. Yes, I'm sure that would have been pre- preserved. The, the awkwardness in writing that final report was that we wanted to do a uh, an unclassified version, which we did, and then we did a classified version, but then we had to do a still more classified version because of some information that was in a particular compartment. Uh, and I'm I'm sure that that information has been retained by the CIA and by other agencies that developed it. But was that the basis of this missing dossier? That's one of the things I don't think we know. Uh, we certainly knew that uh, uh, that the Trump was trying to use information, classified documents, to redact them to to cast doubt on the, invest, on the investigation into Russian intervention. But I think we don't know exactly what those thousands of several thousands of pages of, of documents actually comprised. Well, this gives me a deeply unsettling feeling that 
you know, first of all, just recently with Putin gave his annual three or four hour so-called press conference. And he's quite triumphant that he's going to win the war in Ukraine, not necessarily by military means, but by active measures, influence campaigns, particularly targeting the United States and the House and Senate. And Biden himself mentioned it the other day that, you know, the Russian press is crowing with delight at the the Republicans in the House and Senate blocking aid to Ukraine. So, you know, he's that's his background, isn't it? He was doing active measures campaigns when he was in East Germany, Putin, corrupting West German businessmen and politicians, right? I mean, yes, that's his background, isn't it? That's his background very much in active measures. And so the kinds of things they did in 2016 in our elections were sort of natural to him, new technology, social media and other things, but were natural to someone who'd been involved in active measures. And he is riding high, crowing these days, and uh, feeling like the House of Representatives is doing his, his work for him. Uh, he's obviously not going to move at all on Ukraine until the elections, as he may get lucky again, and Mr. Trump's elected, then the sort of ball game is over. Um, so he is uh, kind of in the catbird seat at the moment. On the, on the ground, the war is a stalemate. But he can probably continue it, surely can continue it for another year. Uh, and then who knows what happens in our elections. Well, what's frustrating about this, Greg, is that everybody's hair should be on fire with the idea that, that Putin interfered in 2016, helped elect Trump, is going to do it again, and is in the, in the middle of, of successfully influencing the Congress to cut off aid to Ukraine, which would would then provide him with a victory, which you know is would then implicate security for NATO, and then on top of that, if they can use their active measures to get Trump reelected, he'd probably pull the U.S. out of NATO. He he would certainly cancel all aid, and that would be the end of Ukraine. So these these are big issues. Aren't they? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're talking about stuff on the scale of, uh, of, you know, back in 1917 when the Germans put Lenin into a boxcar and sent him to Russia. That's an interesting analogy. This is, this is, these developments are on that scale, it seems to me, we really are, are at, a, at a, a very much a, an inflection point. So lots of people have said that, including the president, but this is a, a critical inflection point, and at this point, it's not looking very good. Now, to be sure, many of our Many aspects of our polarization are self-inflicted, but that just means an opportunity for Putin and active measures to work on them. Right, but why then? Uh, uh, do you think that they've successfully muddied the water, the Trump people, to the extent that the press don't want to touch it? Again, I don't understand why more Americans you know, are not alarmed, and in particular the press. They should have their hair on fire. Absolutely, absolutely. Maybe we've gotten so inured to all this craziness that it tends to get dismissed as craziness. But it's not craziness. It's pretty methodical and very damaging. So yeah, everybody ought to have their hair on fire at this moment, it seems to me. We're one of the aspects of our democracy very much in threat. So do you think that the revelations by CNN and the New York Times might help here? I mean, I just... I'm astounded, at, and I have been for some time, for years actually, why, why people can't look at the obvious, that Trump's ties to Russia have been long and 
heavily documented going back to the 80s to the real estate deal with Russian gangsters and, and the casino laundering money and I mean and having bailed him out from all of his bankruptcies I mean what has anybody really put all this evidence together again does it go back to the problem with counterintelligence I think it's a problem with counterintelligence it's also it seems to me in the, in the, in the public media it's really a a problem of focusing on particular events, and we got so used to bits of Trump craziness that it's easy for people to dismiss these things as, oh, well, that's just another bit of Trump nuttiness or craziness. But trying to put serious media out to try and put these things together and see the pattern that you described, that this, this is, there is a, a pattern here of Trump and the Russians and using active measures to try and promote Trump and in the process to uh, increase our polarization, do damage to our democracy. So we are, of course, you know, he's the head of the Republican Party. He's a shoe-in as their nominee. He's ahead in some of the polls. Again, it's happening before our eyes, right? I mean, at it is. Point... There's only so much we can do, to, as, as the Congress has tried to do, to make it hard to withdraw from NATO, for instance. So there's some things we can do as precautionary measures, but even those are going to be difficult given the, the power of the few MAGA ultra-right people in the House of Representatives and the need for the, for the majority, the Republican majority to kowtow to them. So it's it's a it's a bleak prospect for me. Right, but he he's if he gets a second term, he's learned from from the last term, there were so many crazy things he wanted to do in the last term that were stopped by the so-called adults in the room. Right. Now, the second time around, he's just going to have these sycophants and enablers, like the very people involved in this dossier that we're talking about. They're, you know, people like Devin Nunez, Cash Patel, Grinnell, Ratcliffe, John Solomon. They all were playing around trying to alter this dossier or this binder, this 10-inch thick, 2,700-page binder. So the very same people <laughs> that are involved in the dossier or in the missing binder are the very ones that will be at Trump's right hand, right? Absolutely. That, that is worrisome. It's, it means there'll be no guardrails, no constraints, um, and we've, he's been pretty clear about what he wants to do, which is really turn the federal government into his own government, basically. Cutting the civil service, demanding loyalty way up and down the line, not just installing the Radcliffe's and others, but uh, demanding loyalty from the civil service in general. Uh, it's a right. pretty horrific prospect, prospect. And basically neutering the FBI at the same time. I thank you for joining us, uh, Gregor Trotten. I appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. You too. And again, I've been speaking with Gregory Treverton, who's a senior advisor with the Transnational Threats Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and a professor of the practice of international relations at the University of Southern California. He has served in government for the first Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, handling Europe and the National Security Council, and was chairman of the National Intelligence Council from 2014 to 2017. And his books include Dividing Divided States, Beyond the Great Divide, Relevance and Uncertainty in National Intelligence, and Science for Policy. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining further how Trump and his minions tried to doctor the intelligence in the missing blinders 
to support Trump's witch hunt and Russia hoax lies that unfortunately have muddied the waters and left much of the press wary of investigating the mounting evidence as Putin gears up to help elect Trump again. Listen, do you want to know a secret? Do you promise not to tell? Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Scott Horton, who's a professor at Columbia Law School and is a contributing editor at Harper's in Legal Affairs and National Security. He serves on the American branch of the International Law Association and has represented a variety of journalists and whistleblowers. Welcome to Background Briefing, Scott Horton. Great to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And there's a bombshell story that's come out, uh, both at work from uh, CNN, their um, stories titled The Mystery of the Missing Binder, how a collection of raw Russian intelligence disappeared under Trump. And then you've got another one in the New York Times, materials from Russia investigation went missing as Trump left office. And what they're talking about is a 10-inch thick, 2,700-page binders with raw intelligence covering all of the Russian interference into the 2016 election and other active measures which are ongoing and are likely to accelerate in this coming election year. It's sort of a part of this ongoing story where you've got a bunch of people in the Trump administration, starting with William Barr, but you've got Devin Nunez, former chair of the House Intelligence Committee, uh, Cash Patel, Grinnell, Ratcliffe, Solomon, etc. And they've all been dedicated to changing the very nature of the evidence against Trump in his collusion with Putin. And to some extent, they've been very successful in scuttling the Mueller report and then in trying to muddy the waters, which is their tactic. I mean, it's the very reason why... Hunter Biden went to the steps of the Capitol and said, I'm not, I'm not going to testify in private and have the depositions doctored by the Republicans. The whole purpose of uh, getting hold of this intelligence, apparently, was to doctor it, to sanitize it, and to change the narrative away from Trump's collusion with Putin to some kind of weird fantasy that the Democrats uh, were spying on Trump as opposed to the Russians spying on America. Well, I, I think this is a hugely consequential story in the national security arena, One, probably certainly one of the most important of the year. Uh, and it links up with a lot of things you mentioned uh, that have been going on um, since roughly uh, 2020, I guess the last quarter of 2020, this uh, effort 
to reportray uh, what had happened in the um, national security investigations uh, into Trump and his campaign in, in 2016. Um, but I think its consequences go beyond that, uh, uh, in part because we know that the this, this binder included um, raw intelligence. So that means it would include sources and means uh, data, that is, uh, that would reveal uh, the identity of um, of human sources who are used by American intelligence in, in pursuing this matter, and also techniques and means, methods that are used uh, to collect this intelligence. And I think we have to we have to consider this also in the context of another um, uh, fact that's been that was been weighing over the intelligence community, beginning in roughly uh, 2021, in the first quarter of 2021. Um, uh, there were uh, grave concerns that some of the most important uh, American sources, particularly involved in gathering intelligence, looking into the Russian intelligence services, uh, were being exposed and rounded up, uh, making uh, U.S. efforts to collect intelligence in this area much, much more difficult. I think these two facts have to be juxtaposed. So um, exposure of this data uh, and its provision potentially to um, to the Russians, to the Russian intelligence services, uh, has to be a big concern at this point. Well, again, it gets back to Trump's relationship with Putin. And remember, during uh, the Trump years, when Nancy Pelosi confronted him in the cabinet room in the White House, saying, everything with you goes back to Putin. I mean, I mean the idea that this raw intelligence, this dossier of 10 inches thick, 2,700 pages, disappeared as Trump left the White House. And the suspicion is that uh, Meadows took it with him. It's part of the whole pattern, isn't it? And you're left wondering, well, what happened to them? Did Meadows and Trump destroy this dossier? Or did Trump hand it off to the Russians? I mean, it's at the heart of the trial down in Florida where Trump is locked out. He's got his hand-picked judge who's doing everything she can to delay this trial. You'd wonder whether or not, you know, somebody could confront her with this latest story. Stop sitting on your hands. This, 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 there's a real smoking gun here, for God's sake, Eileen Cannon. That, that, that's another very important connection here because, you know, we've heard, of course, uh, from various sources within the intelligence community that the um, that the FBI did not, in fact, retrieve uh, all of the uh, missing documents and and did not retrieve many of the documents that were most important. So I think we now know specifically uh, what one of those documents that was not retrieved is, and uh, you know what happened to it uh, um, uh, is uh, is uh, an important issue. And in this case, you know what we know is that Mark Meadows, the president's chief of staff, had custody. Uh, of uh, this binder, was keeping it in his office. Um, and his own chief of staff, uh, Ms. Hutchinson, says uh, that she observed him remove it uh, from uh, safe in his office, and she believes he took it uh, with him home on January 20th um, after the change of the guard at the White House um, when President Biden came in. Um, his attorney, George Terwilliger, issued a very curiously worded non-denial denial about that, saying 
No, he did not take it home with him that day. <laughs> so I don't know. I, but I would think, frankly, this would be um, under under the procedures that are in place. Of course, what was done with it was not appropriate, should not have been done. Um, and the president and the president's chief of staff had custody and responsibility for it. They would also have a duty to account for it and explain exactly what happened to it. And of course, that's not happening. They're not doing it. Um, so this would be would definitely provide a basis for charges to be brought against uh, uh, against Mark Meadows, I would think. Well, just the other day, when the Republicans in the House and Senate blocked uh, the aid to Ukraine, Biden went public and pointed out that Russian propaganda and state media is crowing about how the Republicans have congratulating them for cutting aid to Ukraine. And obviously, this is Putin's best move to get the U.S. Congress to pull the plug on, on Ukraine. And if Trump comes back, which Putin clearly wants, along with Netanyahu and Orban and a whole bunch of these other crooks, they they want they want uh, Trump back in the White House. But uh, what Biden more or less said is that, you know, the Republicans are basically echoing and parroting Putin's propaganda. So it leads you to question, who are these people and how much are they on the payroll? We don't know exactly. You can look back at Trump's history. He's been on the Russian payroll in terms of them laundering money through his properties and through his casinos and uh, giving him sweetheart deals on mansions down in Florida. And I think they're still financing uh, Truth Social, by the way. There's a lot of evidence of Russian oligarchs' money getting into U.S. politics. I think this Congressman Dana Rohrbacker out here in Orange County, he was what they funneled cryptocurrency money to him. So is anybody looking into this? I know you're in touch with FBI counterintelligence. Surely there's... Since you can buy the Congress because of Citizens United, I imagine, along with the election interference that the Russians are doing through active measures and social media, are they also bribing these congressmen? Yeah, I think that's um, that's an acute concern, uh, and I think there is very substantial evidence that there have been uh, funds distributed to U.S. government uh, officials uh, and FBI agents, by the way, uh, in order to influence uh, their conduct. I, I would just start by noting, you, you talked about President Biden um, and his statement uh, and also his social media posts, but you can also look at uh, Vladimir Putin. He gave, um, he did not do his annual uh, multiple hour uh, press conference last year, but he did one this year, uh, just completed a couple of days ago now. Uh, and in the course of that, he was crowing at length uh, about uh, his successes relative to Ukraine. These successes about Ukraine are not military successes on the ground in Ukraine. They're successes that his influence operations, that is the Russian intelligence influence operations, have achieved both in the United States and in Europe, um, where um, uh, his uh, sock puppet, Viktor Orban, the prime minister of uh, Hungary, has blocked EU funding uh, for Ukraine, um, uh, using all the techniques that are available to a member of the EU and uh, Republicans uh, in the House of Representatives in the Senate have bottled up uh, assistance to Ukraine um, uh, in uh, congressional appropriations. 
Uh, and Putin was claiming credit for that uh, and, and was admonishing Ukraine. He said, you put your faith in the West, but I'm better able to influence the West than you are. And of course, this is exactly what he means. Now, as to the details of how these influence operations are being carried out, um, it's quite clear that Russia is spending more money and more effort uh, on influence operations targeting Europe and the United States than it ever did at any point during the Cold War. It's a huge effort. Uh, and it's something that personally involved uh, Vladimir Putin because, of course, his career uh, as a KGB officer spent uh, in substantial part in Germany was involved in exactly this sort of operations, getting to and corrupting democratic societies from their soft underbelly. Uh, and that meant uh, identifying officials and parliamentarians who could be moved some way or another. Um, and I know in the United States, and you're, you're right, I have been advising a number of uh, FBI uh, counterintelligence um, officers, mostly counterintelligence officers who are focused on the Russian intelligence services. Uh, and I would say there's a high alarm of, a high degree of alarm um, among them right now about what's going on in the United States and has been going on over the last couple of years and the failure of um, the FBI and the Department of Justice to adequately act on these things. And, you know, that includes, I mean, I've, I've certainly heard uh, agents talk about how um, they uh, got inside of uh, operations that were designed using uh, cryptocurrencies and the like to pay uh, Russian, uh, to pay American officials, American congressmen. I think you just cited the name of one who, uh, you know, uh, who I think is uh, strongly suspected of having uh, received uh, payments uh, channeled uh, through various sources in cryptocurrency uh, from the Kremlin. Um, and that's a person who was a cold warrior and then just overnight became Putin's best friend um, who was engaged in activities that just seemed to be uh, following the instruction, essentially, of uh, of the Russian intelligence services. And he's not the only one. You can also look at what's been going on with the Heritage Foundation, where, you know, they're Rus the Russia analysts of the Heritage Foundation quit. Um, so have the military advisors quit. And they've all talked very softly after leaving that something very weird happened at this organization and that it involves the flow of money coming from the Kremlin, sometimes being channeled through or involving also Viktor Orban in Hungary. So I think they're huge operations, and there's very little that's known about these things um, in the public that's been reported. I think there have been uh, huge efforts to discover them um, and uh, discover the details of how they work by the FBI, uh, but I think very little of this has been allowed to come out in public, and that's probably a... Um, a strategic error because the best way to defend against these efforts is for the Russian intelligence operations themselves to be known to the public. Right, but the Republicans and Trump and his and his uh, followers, and you know the, the people I mentioned earlier, Nunez, Patel, Grinnell, Ratcliffe, Solomon, and et al. Uh, they've been very successful in muddying the waters. The press doesn't want to touch it. The, the so-called Russia hoax. Uh, when in fact it's always been real. The only people that ever was able to penetrate this denial that's going on on the part of Trump's people and and the press in not wanting to touch it is uh, the Senate Intelligence Committee report, which nobody's ever read, but it's as clear as day. So just going back to the dossier in the last couple of minutes, the history, I guess, is that 
towards the end of Obama, when Brennan was in charge, they wanted to preserve all of the data that they had because they were worried about Trump because they knew because they had a guy inside the Kremlin, a guy called Oleg Smolenkov, who defected. The CIA got him, they exfiltrated him out of uh, Russia. He was a top aide to the deputy foreign minister who was in and he was in and out of Putin's office. So they, the CIA had some really good intelligence. But then he comes back, they exfiltrate him through Montenegro and his family, put him in a safe house, and then Patel and company inside, and Devon Nunez, they out him to the CNN. Then he has to go off into a safe house and he disappears so he can never testify to the Mueller committee. So this is the game that they play. And they've been ever since they've been in office, when Trump came in, Nunez and company, they've been trying to get hold of this dossier and sanitize it and change it to, to make it look like Trump is innocent and there's a witch hunt against him. And Ratcliffe did that when he was DNI. He altered it all. They gave it to Solomon, who's a Trumpster, and he started to alter it all. And in fact, he's Trump's liaison to the National Archives, along with Cash Patel, who recently <laughs> said he's going to jail all of his enemies in the press. So... It's unbelievable. What the hell is wrong with the press? If, no, I, I think you're. I think you're exactly right. Um, and uh, and of course, we know from these latest disclosures, uh, both that uh, Cash Patel and John Solomon, who holds no government office uh, and has no um, national security clearance to hold these and use these documents, uh, was in fact in possession of uh, many of these files. And uh, you know these. Uh, if we trace the movements of these individuals, there's a lot of stuff that is uh, that r raises really serious concern uh, about where they travel and who they meet with. Uh, particularly, you were talking about Montenegro. I mean, seeing in Montenegro meeting with people who uh, were Russian influence agents uh, around the time of the attempted uh, assassination of the Montenegrin prime minister, for instance. Um, and uh, in the case of Mr. Solomon, meeting repeatedly uh, with uh, with uh, oligarchs who were also known to be um, Russian uh, influence agents, if not uh, if not in fact Russian intelligence agents. Um, and uh, you know, uh, there are no innocent explanations for a lot of these meetings. And of course, the concern that information from these dossiers, particularly. Uh, means and sources information is flowing to Russia um, couldn't be higher than right now. I mean, it's flashing red. Uh, and we have to look at all the people who had and handled this information at this time uh, as uh, people who potentially um, could have leaked it. Uh, so, you know, so I think these concerns are right now, they're off the charts. Well, Scott Horton, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. My pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Scott Horton, who's a professor at Columbia Law School and is a contributing editor at Harper's in Legal Affairs and National Security. He serves on the American branch of the International Law Association and has represented a variety of journalists and whistleblowers. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back discussing the American rights embrace of the fascist dictator Franco, along with the Hungarian kleptocrat and despot Viktor Orban.
he would tear our union down But our union's gonna break them slavery chains And our union's gonna break them slavery chains I walked up on a mountain in the middle of the sky Could see every farm and every town I could see all the people in this whole wide world That's a union that'll tear the fascists down, down, down That's a union that'll tear the fascists down Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Sebastian Faber, who is a professor of Hispanic Studies at Oberlin College. He's the author of a number of books, including Anglo-American Hispanists and the Spanish Civil War, Hispaniolia, Commitment and Discipline, Memory Battles of the Spanish Civil War, History, Fiction, Photography, and Exhuming Franco, Spain's Second Transition and he serves as the chair of the Board of Governors of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade Archives, whose quarterly magazine is The Volunteer. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sebastian Faber. Great to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And, of course, the Abraham Lincoln Brigade were the uh, American leftists who volunteered and went to fight uh, for the Spanish Republic in the Spanish Civil War from 1936 to 1939, and they were often referred to as premature anti-fascists, which is a title which I think probably applies to me and some other people who have been saying for some time now that we are heading into some kind of fascism with Donald Trump, who's always been an authoritarian and admired dictators and strongmen like Putin. Mussolini and uh, I imagine Franco as well. So what is this romance that the American right is having with Franco? We know they're also having a romance with Orban, which we can talk about, but why Franco? That's a really good question. It's it's a little bit of a curiosity. Um, One thing that I've thought of is that um, of all the 20th century dictators, Hitler, Stalin, Pinochet, Salazar, um, Franco might be the safest one, um, the one with least obvious baggage, the one about whom there's less negative narrative in the mainstream culture so that it's easier to champion him and to lionize him as a model for the United States. Like You can imagine that if the American right or far right were um, trying to rehab- rehabilitate Adolf Hitler, that'd be a more complicated task than rehabilitating Francisco Franco, about whom in the U.S. not much is known, uh, I think, in general, and who really since the end of the Spanish Civil War, but especially since World War II, has had a steady good rap in the United States among the right, from William Buckley all the way to Nixon. Um, he was generally seen as a as an ally of the United States, which, which he was in practice. So when, when he died in November 1975 um, and Saturday Night Life in its first season famously announced his death and kept announcing his death throughout the whole first season, uh, Chevy Chase um, quoted um, then former President Nixon to, to in, in very positive terms that Franco, he was a, a loyal ally of the United States. And um, But ironic, I mean, the, the joke when uh, Chevy Chase announced that was that as he said that, the projection um, over his shoulder showed a famous picture of Francisco Franco bringing the fascist salute next to Adolf Hitler. 
Well, you know, I years ago, Sebastian, I was in a bookstore in Barcelona when when Franco was still in power, and these young fascists came into the bookstore and threw black ink all over the books and the shelves, you know, like Sartre and other books that they found offensive. And it was my first brush with fascists, uh, these young, clean-cut guys. Uh, <laughs> I guess they looked like young Republicans. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. So yeah, now, I mean, now yeah. in, by the way, in Madrid, Madrid is very much a pro-Franco, pro-Vox, the latest incarnation of Spanish fascism. Yeah, that, I mean, that's Vox is, is an interesting case because on the one hand, it's just the Spanish version, a belated Spanish version of of the right wing, the far right parties we've seen now very active and growing fast in France, in the Netherlands, which is where I'm from, Germany, Scandinavia, uh, Austria. Um, and Vox really came online very late. Um, but when it did, it had quickly adopted all the trappings of the Euro other European far right parties at the same time that it was openly nostalgic of, of the Franco dictatorship, or at least tried to fight the what they call the dictatorship of political correctness that doesn't allow a person to be nostalgic of the Franco dictatorship. Um, so it, it's an interesting point for debate whether to what extent Vox is a neo-Francoist party or it's just a f modern far-right party who within the Spanish context tries to woo its voters by some um, reference, some friendly references to the Franco dictatorship to, to tap into that nostalgia. It, it's not completely clear how that works. But what is true is that, as you say, Madrid, especially since the, um, since the investiture of, of the current prime minister, Pedro Sanchez, a month ago or so, Madrid has been the um, the place where far-right protesters have gathered every night before the Socialist Party headquarters, bringing fascist salutes, um, uh, singing fascist um, songs. Um, and that has to do with the way in which Spain never fully came to terms with Francoism in the sense that um, the Spanish, even the Spanish center-right, sort of the, the mainstream conservative party, never really got around to could bring itself to condemn the Franco dictatorship fully, full-throatedly. So that um, rehabilitating Franco in Spain has always been easy because he was never not rehabilitated. And you could say the same, really, I think, about the U.S. conservative realm, where within, within the U.S., right, Franco never ceased being kind of a benevolent dictator who brilliantly suppressed communism in Spain, supposedly, and uh, became um, what what he's himself portrayed as the sentinel of the West, right? The sort of the the guy who safeguarded um, Spain from becoming a Soviet Soviet satellite state, and who became a loyal ally of the United States in a strategically very important part of Europe. It's not a coincidence that in the early 1950s, the U.S. government brokered a a, a treaty with Spain that secured lots of infrastructural investments in Spain from the U.S. in exchange for the U.S. permission to build military bases on Spanish soil, and of which one still is in, in full operation. Right. Well, the other thing, though, that the other ally of Franco during the Civil War and during his long dictatorship was, of course, the Catholic Church, and mm -hmm. in particular, Opus Dei, right. which was the far-right Catholic secretive cult 
that was uh, formed and founded in Spain. Right. They're very influential in Spanish, in the law in Spain, and particularly in the universities. And, but they're also very influential here in the United States. You know, we've got Leonard Leo, who is tied in with Opus Dei. Obviously, they don't admit who they're who their members are, but he's had just one man has had the extraordinary influence over the US judiciary to put on these far right authoritarian moralists who mm. represent a majority now on the Supreme Court. He's got like six of them hand picked along with a, a lot of the federal judiciary. So mm. that's also an adjunct to Spanish fascism, isn't it? Opus Day. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you're, you're completely right that the Catholic Church was one of Franco's, the, the strongest pillars of the Franco regime. And um, I mean, not for nothing, there was a clear quid pro quo in the sense that the Catholic Church in exchange was it returned all the tremendous power that it had right up until the proclamation of the Spanish Republic in 1931. So the Spanish Republic, which lasted just really five years only until the Civil War broke out, was one of its main goals was to wrest control from the church in all areas of, of society, especially education. And with Franco's victory, the church was given everything right back um, with, uh, or even more than it had. And one of the features of Spanish democracy today, and one of the arguments that people who, that people wield who say that Spain today is really not has really never gotten rid of its Francoist legacy, point to the persistent and the continued influence of the church in politics, in the judiciary, like you say. And it's been, it's clear that in the Spanish context, as you just say, in the U.S. context as well, the right has played a long game, right? Has has very steadily infiltrated or, or secured its power in important parts of the three branches of government. And, and that's in Spain, it's clearly the case. But um, this, the Spanish right has, as you say, always had tentacles that reach into Latin America very strongly, and it, it continues to do so, as well as the United States. So, Sebastian Faber, let's get back to the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, since you're the chair of the Board of Governors of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade Archives. Sure. His quarterly magazine is the volunteer, and I mentioned earlier they were often referred to as premature anti-fascists because they were the first to put their bodies on the line about the threat of fascism in Europe spreading around the world and, and into the United States, uh, where there was a lot of sympathy for Hitler and mm -hmm. Mussolini. As it turns out, some of the work that uh, Rachel Maddow has been doing is pretty extraordinary, the extent to which the Nazis had infiltrated the U.S. government, the Congress, and the House with their sympathizers. So there is obviously an analogy here to the current situation where you've got Liz Cheney warning that we're sleepwalking into dictatorship. Right. Weren't the Abraham Lincoln Brigade volunteers basically issuing the same warning back in 1936? Yes, they were completely. They were. Um, I'm, I'm always hesitant to to make very to make too facile historical analogies, but absolutely the the the, um, the U.S. volunteers who in 1936 understood what the threat of fascism was and were willing to, like you say, put their bodies on the line to stop it, and the tens of thousands of Americans who supported them from the from here from the U.S. Um, in the in close to 3,000 Americans went over to Spain as medical volunteers, soldiers, truck drivers, etc. But many, many, a multiple of that here in the U.S. 
raised funds and supported them and 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 to sort of empath empathized with them and, and followed their their uh, exploits in in Spain and welcomed them when they came back. Eight hundred died in Spain, but the the others came back. And it's true they they the, the materials that we that we have in the archive and that we use with our in our workshops with U.S. high school teachers. Uh, include letters and and diaries and uh, films and photographs and oral histories, and they all show this extraordinary clarity of mind and clarity of analysis in the mid 1930s um, when it comes to the dangers of fascism. And conversely, they show the kind of the blindness and the naivete of the main U.S. mainstream media, who kind of was late to acknowledge the dangers of fascism. And like you say, the, the level to which the fascist regimes in Italy and Germany and later in Spain uh, could count on support from important corporate and political elites here in the United States. And I think going back those 80 some years to, to 1936 and reading those materials from America's premature anti-fascists allow us to kind of try to look at today's situation with that similar kind of creative mind and seeing the larger picture. And I think one of the, I would say that the two main features of, of this vision that the, the Lincoln Brigade volunteers had was on the one hand, this very clear transnational frame of analysis, right? Where they saw what was happening in Germany and what's happening in Spain and Italy as connected with what's happening, what was happening in the United States. And secondly, they translated that transnational frame of analysis into an internationalist frame of action where they believed that it was their duty as citizens of the world and and as individuals solidary with other individuals in different countries fighting similar fights to join them and to see this struggle against fascism as a world um, a worldwide struggle where even though one is American one one cannot uh, therefore decide to ignore, a fight that the Spaniards are fighting, for example. So I think those two things are really, at least for us in the Abraham Lincoln Brigade archives, clear features of, of the legacy of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade that are, are very relevant today and, and important to um, to tell people about and to have people learn from. Well, just in the last couple of minutes, of course, you have something similar happening today in Ukraine, where international volunteers are flocking to fight with the Ukrainians against the Russians under Putin, who fit the definition of fascists, it's just very much a fascist criminal regime, mafia state in uh, that Putin runs in Russia. And it has a lot of similarities in the sense that they're rounding up gays and equating anybody that's gay with foreign terrorists, etc. So do you think that's a reasonable analogy? That that's a very that's that's a very tricky tricky analogy and and I've had um, very uh, intense discussions with many people about that. I, I can see the argument that it's it's a similar struggle against an imperial <laughs> aggression that that Russia um, has has um, perpetrated against Ukraine. On the other hand, it's also true that the international volunteers that have flocked to Ukraine are a motley mix of uh, that do strangely also include volunteers from the European far right with um, neo-fascist and neo-Nazi sympathies. Um, so it's it's to, to kind of simply equate the international brigades that fought in the Spanish Civil War, many of whom came 
from the Young Communist League and the Communist Party, and many of whom were active in the labor movement and had a mm -hmm. clear leftist commitment with the more mixed bag of mercenaries and other international volunteers who've come to fight to the side of Ukraine. It's, 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 it's hard to equate them directly. Or it, it, There's definitely no. things that are uncommon and other things that, that set them apart. But it's a super interesting framework to sure. think about what's going on in Ukraine. Right, but it doesn't do justice to the to the Abraham Lincoln Brigade volunteers who were clearly motivated by international kind of leftist brotherhood. Even though, of course, if you read George Orwell's homage to Catalonia, they, they were not without divisions within the left, which in many ways sabotaged the republic. No, that's absolutely true, and it, it's true that there are plenty plenty of divisions and plenty of rancor and plenty of internal conflict. But um, as Giles Tremlett um, argues in, in his, one of his most recent books, which is a sort of a general history of the international brigades, um, in the end, what bound all those volunteers was a very clear anti-fascist commitment. So they saw themselves primarily as anti-fascists, and anti-fascism was the basis of their coming together to stand up against Franco and, and Hitler and Mussolini on Spanish soil. And that is a legacy, I think, that we would do well in, in, in understanding and, and learning from. Well, Sebastian Faber, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Sebastian Faber, a professor of Hispanic studies at Oberlin College. He's the author of a number of books, including Anglo-American, Hispanists, and the Spanish Civil War, Hispaniola, Commitment and Discipline. Memory Battles of the Spanish Civil War, History, Fiction, Photography, and Exhuming Franco, Spain's Second Transition. And he serves as the chair of the Board of Governors of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade Archives, whose quarterly magazine is The Volunteer. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.